This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Nicole Belsman. She's a woman of passion, and her passion lies in environmental medicine. As a result of her own infertility issues, 10 miscarriages, and noticing a strong connection between many of her patients' illnesses and their home, Nicole established the building biology industry in Australia and in 1999 founded the Australian College of Environmental Studies, a registered training organisation, to educate people about the health hazards in the building environment. Nicole is an accomplished naturopath and acupuncturist of 15 years and has trained over 2,000 naturopaths at various institutions, the best-selling author of Healthy Home, Healthy Family, has published in peer-reviewed journals, past columnist for Body and Soul newspaper, that's six million plus readers for our listeners. She's appeared on every major television network and is regularly consulted by the media to discuss electromagnetic fields, mould and chemicals. Nicole lectures extensively throughout Australia and abroad, educating integrative GPs about environmental health issues. She has three young children and is currently doing her PhD on environmental chemical assessment. And for our Australasian listeners, Nicole will be a keynote speaker at this year's joint AMA-CMA conference in September 2016 on the topic of geomedicine, the importance of locations in clinical practice. That is a heck of a mouthful, Nicole. Welcome to FX Medicine. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Nicole, you've got a really interesting resume. Tell us about your career journey, because like, that was a real, quite a bit of an upset, 10 miscarriages. Tell me about your history yeah. and what prompted you to study naturopathy in the first place? Uh, it started in year 10, and I became obsessed with cancer and figured there had to be a, a cure or a cause of various cancers, and I started to look at Bernard Jensen's work in the States, who was a prominent naturopath at the time and right into colonic irrigation and diet. And it really made sense to me. So when I looked through the career guide and I saw naturopaths, I thought, oh my God, that's awesome. I don't have to do pap smears and I can help patients. <laughs> so I embarked in a journey in naturopathy and and then in the first year I realised that for acute conditions that it probably wouldn't uh, treat patients as well as something like Chinese medicine, which had a long history. So I then also embarked on a degree in Chinese medicine. At the time, it wasn't a degree, but then it became a degree after I finished and I upgraded my, my skills and went to China in 91 to do more training in acupuncture. And all this time, I started to realise as I got into practice that really what I was doing is giving a shopping bag full of stuff that patients may or may not need. A lot of them with chronic multimorbidities and chronic fatigue was becoming bread and butter by the 10 years of practice. And I realized that a lot of these patients were saying, 
you do think the mould is a problem, you know, in the third or fourth consultation. But it wasn't until my husband and I moved into our new home, our first home, which was built in the 60s, and we both developed insomnia within days of moving in. I then, 12 months later, fell pregnant, then had 10 miscarriages, only to find out through my neighbour that no one had successfully had children in this home. Um, wow. But I started, yeah, I started to look at how the home could affect our health and started to listen to my patients and then started walking into their homes. And I was shocked how often the house was either contributing to, exacerbating or causing uh, many of my patients' illnesses, particularly with allergies, asthma, uh, skin conditions, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. M- most of these conditions are caused by something within the home. And of course, what when you combine that with diet and genotype, you start to understand Pandora's box, why there's an epidemic of chronic illnesses that we're not addressing. Now, Pandora's box is an understatement, I think. Um, this is seems to be a huge issue spanning like a multitude, a plethora of sick conditions. So how big of an issue is building biology? How how big is, I mean, just mould, for instance? Yes, well, a lot of the work we do, so as a building biologist, we go into buildings to see if, they're making, if the home is making them sick. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at things like electromagnetic fields, allergens, house dust mite, pollen, for example, uh, mould. Mould and electromagnetic fields would be 90% of the work that we do we mould particularly now that the information is coming out as to how mould can cause not just an allergic response in susceptible individuals, but an inflammatory response in certain genotypes, we're starting to get an understanding that mould could actually be one of the most common causes of chronic fatigue syndrome, certainly in Western countries. We know that at least one in three homes in Australia are water damaged, have had a flood, drainage issue, plumbing issues, etc. And if you're one of the 24% of the population that has a genotype that it doesn't create antibodies to mould, what happens is, is every time you walk into that building, you, it sets up an inflammatory response that doesn't switch off. So normally with the immune system, you walk into a space, it sets up inflammation, triggers the uh, immune uh, B cells to create antibodies. So next time you walk into it, you know you don't even notice any, you don't get symptoms or anything because you fight off the antigens. But with these people, 24% of the population, it's like they've got this the immune system has dementia because it goes in, well, oh, here's another antigen we're not familiar with. It sets up an inflammatory response. And the inflammation, when it happens in the brain, creates brain fog because you've got these inflammatory cytokines and interleukins that are creating inflammation in key parts of the brain that result in um, short-term memory loss, in fatigue, in um, um, missing words called anomia, where they're mid-sentence, they can't remember words of objects. Um, obviously, there's chronic fatigue. In the periphery, the inflammation restricts the circulation in the capillaries, and that results in fibromyalgic type of symptoms, numbness, tingling, pain, uh, muscle weakness, for example, um, that creates this onslaught of symptoms that is often excluded through other pathologies, and in the end, we give them the tidal chronic fatigue syndrome because we don't know what's going on. Yeah. And in fact, it's a chronic inflammatory response. So I guess I need to ask here because, you know, this is such a plethora of different symptoms from, you know, cognitive decline to fibromyalgia. So there's an immune or neurological or, or both, or th- there's a lot of span there. How do you tease apart a cause or a factor? Well, like all good natural therapists do is they, they investigate. They ask lots of questions. And they keep trialing 
different treatments and providing advice until patients start to get better. So for us, most people who come to us have gone through a plethora of different practices, um, lots of GPs, etc., and everything has been excluded. So then we start looking at how the house could be uh, contributing and we look for, we know what type of symptoms could be matched to certain types of things in the home. So if they've got uh, a CFS diagnosis or fibromyalgia and it hasn't improved with diet, for example, then we're looking for key things like uh, radio frequencies, electromagnetic fields. We're looking at where the router is versus uh, their bed space because we know radio frequencies in wireless technologies affect melatonin. And melatonin, of course, is the most important antioxidant free radical scavenger we have in the body. It sort of can't compare to any supplement or anything on the market that can even do remotely what melatonin does in our brain. Mm. And we know uh, that it's such an important one. When you affect melatonin, the entire immune system response is affected. The body's you know, the health declines significantly because they don't sleep. And if they don't sleep, everything falls apart. Right. So we look for where those sources of radio frequencies are, wireless routers, inverters, smart meters, mobile phones, where do they charge them? How much time do they spend on a mobile phone? We know with this technology, it increases permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So if they're using this technology regularly close to their head, then whatever chemical body burden of chemical they have in their body is going to have a free ride into the central nervous system. So we, we look at uh, all of these potential causes like mold, um, radio frequencies and wireless technology and chemical load because all three seem to cause the same types of symptoms mm. which eventually is often diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome in certain genotypes. So I, I get like there's so much work being done on on genotyping and, and gene SNPs and it just appears to me that this is, I mean, it's definitely the next phase of, of medicine, certainly personalised medicine. How far away do you think we are before this becomes commonly accepted that, yeah, we really need to look at these um, these phenotypes or genotypes? Look, I think natural therapists are normally on to it far sooner than oh, yeah. medicine, so probably within yeah. <laughs> three to – with the genomic-wide association studies, it's going to take another five years, I think, before we start realising. But we already know now that when it comes to environmental health-related issues, it's the um, SNPs. Yep. in the detoxification enzymes and genes that are the predominant things that we need to look at because a person's ability to deal with uh, chemicals is often predetermined by what uh, SNPs they have in their detoxification profile. So that's a really important one that we can utilise now to give us an idea of um, how they could be susceptible. So certain people shouldn't be wearing perfume every day because it stays in their body so much longer than, say, Joe Blow, who doesn't have these SNPs and who can metabolise, you know, his phase one, two, and three. His oxidation pathways are much more efficient than people who don't have these, who do have these SNPs. So it really is coming to look at where are the causes, what triggers these um, issues in these people, and how can we uh, implement avoidance and normal and really important educational strategies to show them these are the potential causes in the house. This is how you reduce your exposure so that, you know, it doesn't become an issue for you, even though you have this genotype. So given that, you know, you may not be able to avoid these toxicants totally because we live in the 21st century, yep. do you think therefore it's a case of decreasing load or improving resilience or a combination of both? Definitely, definitely both. 
We have over 113 million chemicals registered for use on the world's largest database, yeah. Chemical Abstract Service, and every 60 seconds, another 20 chemicals are registered for use. Yeah. Most of these have never been tested because the burden of proof is not on industry to prove that they're harmful. So it takes researchers like myself and all over the world to go all decades and generations to show, well, are these chemicals harmful or are they safe? And BPA is a great example because... The manufacturers realised the community didn't want BPA because of its hormone-disrupting potential and childhood obesity and all that sort of stuff. So they replaced it with BPS, which has been left from the (laughs) same family, family. which is showing to be worse. That's crazy. It's nuts. So as natural therapists, what we have to do is is educate people that chemicals are not regulated, that most of them have never been tested, that we need to reduce our load, that what we watch on TV to promote pesticides and air fresheners and perfumes have actually not been tested. Many of them are known hormone-disrupting chemicals that can have devastating epigenetic effects, you know, down the pathways, down these transgenerational effects into the new, into the next uh, generation. Mm. So we need to educate them that less is best and really start thinking about it. Why are we putting these moisturisers on our face and creams? Why don't we go back to basics like seed and nut oils and, and jojoba oil and things like that if we have dry skin? And if we've got dry skin, why? Is it our environment that's too dry? Yeah. Is it our diet not appropriate? Is it stress? Let's really get to the cause of these conditions. And half this stuff, more than half, that's in our shopping centres, in our beauty aisles, etc., is just rubbish that is creating a and contributing to many of the chronic illnesses we see in everyday practice. Mm. Uh, um, your paper, there's a, a term in there called pandemic idiopathic multimorbidity. Can yes. you explain what that means? Because it seems to be that, you know, like what you've been talking about previously, but can you just wrap that up for our listeners, what that term means? So pandemic means it's a worldwide epidemic of multi uh it's multimorbidity. So basically, idiopathic means we don't know the cause. Multimorbidities means chronic illnesses that have uh, symptoms in various systems of the body. So it's basically a pandemic of chronic illnesses that affects, particularly in Western society, including your cardiovascular diseases and your mm. cancers and your chronic fatigue, etc. that has become the norm for general practice and something that naturopaths have to treat all the time because it's not being addressed adequately in Western medicine. They don't have the knowledge or the skills or the training to address this because it's geared towards an acute medicine. The naturopaths are really having to, through a, a process of deduction and through knowledge through companies like yourself, to try and upskill themselves to help these patients but what we really need to also focus on is what's contributing or causing many of these illnesses and that's where I found the home was a big part of the um, causes of many of the patients that I saw as a naturopath over the years so Mm. that's why I started to look into that. So this would obviously include the sick building syndrome which like it it becomes a legal conundrum. Um, how How do you approach this from you know, let's say a family have bought a home and then there turns out to be, you know, let's say it's a mould problem. Is that just buyer beware, caveat emptor, and you're stuck with it so it's up to you to fix it? Or is there recourse for these people? Unfortunately, there's not. Um, water damage buildings um, is such a huge problem. As I said, about one in three Australian homes estimate have some degree of water damage and it's just been a disaster. I and mean, we get calls about it almost every day. Mm. 
and it's really oh, some of it's due to the occupants themselves because they don't put the exhaust fan on when they you know have a shower. They have long showers or long baths. Um, they don't mop up you know any wet areas or it's really important, especially with mold. Mold is actually not the problem, it's water because fungi is everywhere from the Arctic to the Antarctica. It's there because it's nature's greatest decomposers. But what happens when you have food, which is everything in your house, and then you add water to it, when it sits there for more than 48 hours, those spores germinate and then that becomes the problem. It, It starts creating this chemical stew of biologicals, bacteria and their byproducts, fungi and their byproducts like mycotoxins, which then become aerosolized and become a problem, especially in the genotypes that can't create antibodies. Right. In more, not what I'd say normal people without these this genotype, it creates allergies, like they might get asthma. People have IgE-mediated responses to mould. Um, but what we're now seeing is mould can cause an allerg- allergic reaction, but it can also cause an inflammatory reaction, oh, yeah, which yeah. is really new in the scientific literature. So we're starting to see that we need to create environments in our home that's like a dry Mediterranean type of environment, not moisture where mould will grow because it's there to take over that environment because it's nature's greatest decomposers. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was rather strange that in the list of TGA-approved ingredients that um, uh, Stachybotrys chartarum was listed as approved to be an active ingredient. Really? <laughs> yep. That's in the list from 2007. <laughs> it has been taken off the list as of 2016. Wow. It got a lot of publicity with the Cleveland study in the US about 15 years ago when these ba- nine babies died from what they later discovered was inhalation of um, the spores from Stachybotrys. And did it give them um, pulmonary fibrosis? Is that what they died from? Yes, and yep. bleeding. Yes, and yep. bleeding, that's right. Yeah. So the thing with the strays we find is because our building materials are different, mm. as building biologists, when we're sampling for mould, stachy doesn't come up very often. And the problem with stachy is because it doesn't tend to sporulate. So you have to take surface samples, not air samples. Right. So different fungi do different things. But the problem, the reason why mould seems to be so much more of a problem now is, is in the 70s, they started putting fungicides in our gyprock and our plasterboard and our wallpapers, etc. And this fungicide acts like an antibiotic. So it kills off a lot of the fungi, but then you get fungi that mutate and become pathogenic. And it's this pathogenic, new types of pathogenic fungi um, in, con- in conjunction with other bacteria hmm. that is creating this in- this environment with that is affecting patients with these genotypes and chronic fatigue syndrome. But Stachybotrys um, or S. chartarum, that doesn't appear to be such an issue in Australia. It appears to be other species. Am I right in that, or is it just what we've researched? Yes, um, you don't. You do find stachycationy, but you're normally looking like the entire wall has been affected. It's long-term water damage because we in mould, what we look at when we're testing is the water activity. Oh, right. So certain fungi need very, like sacchi needs a lot of water activity over a very, very long time. So you don't go into a house that's recently been water damaged for the last two months and expect to find sacchi, but you would in a house that's had water issues for years. Right. So the, the timing of the water damage tells us potentially which fungi are, are likely to be there. However, what we are finding is that it's the chemical stew of not just the fungi, but the bacteria. Bacteria yeah. multiply in moisture and the um, toxins that are created from that 
can be very damaging to patients, to anybody really, but particularly to these people who can't create antibodies to these uh, antigens. And, and obviously something that's extensively mould damage, you, you should be replacing that material just wholesale. But where it can't be or where it might be a small discrete area, how do we treat it? Okay, so according to the leading authority on mould remediation, the IICRC R520, which was published in 2015, you should, uh, if it's a small area less than a size of a piece of paper, you would normally use something like a microfiber cloth and then wipe it down. That should be sufficient. Often, however, though, if you find that the mould has infiltrated, the fungi have infiltrated into the wall, then you might need to bleach it to get rid of the... the um, the staining, but of course that won't kill the mould. You don't want to kill mould because 75% of mould spores are dead anyway. Of fungi can't create spores. So the key to mould is always the moisture. Right. For small areas, a bit of vinegar, 80% vinegar to a 20% water solution is sufficient. But the reality is in mould remediation, what you want to do is to actually remove it, and that's where microfiber cloths are important. If the area extends more than the size of a door, according to the NIOSH standard, you should really get a building biologist to test it and a mould remediator to address it. So depending what they can do is what you find is some of the worst times I've ever been in, I couldn't see mould. I couldn't smell it. And when I got the results back from the air samples, it was so toxic. I should have gone in there with a full face a respirator and a Tyvek suit. Um, and it was basically coming from the subfloor where the um, return air hadn't been put properly into the return air section, the ductwork. And because they had some water damage under the house, all the mould from the soil was coming up through the air conditioning, the uh, ducted vents and right into the house and contaminated every single surface, every book, every piece of clothing. Wow. So it was a real problem. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who do air sampling for building sites and, and industrial areas. And it just seems to me that, you know, if there's this chronic, as you say, this idiopathic multimorbidity issue, people just aren't right. Maybe they should be looking at sampling. But So I've got to ask about expense. How, is it reasonable for you know a patient to do this or is it really restricted to industrial-type testing? How, how expensive is testing? Testing, all right. So you're looking at about $500 for a building biologist to come in. They'll spend three to four hours plus write a report about what's going on. Yeah. They will use a thermal camera to identify potential thermal differences, which may or may not pick up moisture. Mm -hmm. So that gives us an idea where it could be. We'll use a moisture meter to actually detect moisture in various building materials, and that tells us where the moisture potentially could be coming from. Because ultimately, if we don't address where the moisture is coming from, then, you know, everything else is going to be a waste of time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, and then we'll document that using a moisture mapping tool. We'll then take potentially sampling. Samples are expensive because, mm. you know, sending stuff to the lab, air samples are about $150 each. Surface samples are about $150 each. So what we're finding now is we're using a lot of uh, what we call ERMI, which is doing a sampling of the house dust in carpet in the bedroom and in the living space, sending it to the US, and it's able to give us pretty much an idea of all the types of fungi that have ever been in that house that's collected in the house dust and determining whether uh, and comparing it to healthy homes. Yeah. So this is a fantastic tool to use for anyone with asthma or chronic fatigue or chronic illnesses who's thinking about moving into a home. They can get this dust sampled and it costs about 
$300 or so, and it will tell them, you know, how healthy or not that house is versus other homes that are water damaged. I guess from, you know, when you're talking about a chronically sick person who's probably you know, visited every everybody and, and gotten little result or, or not complete result, that this sort of that sort of amount is quite worthwhile. That's not unheard of considering some of the the costs I've heard thrown around for various treatments. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean most people have come to us and spent thousands on their health. Some of them have even gone to the States to try and figure out what's what's wrong. Mm. Now of course this is just the testing side of things. I mean if you don't get to the cause, it doesn't matter what you do or how you treat the patient, as long as they're exposed to in, inhaled allergens like this or creating this inflammatory response, they're never going to get better. Mm. One of the most useful tests I actually found to use as a naturopath was the VCS test, V for Victor, C for Cat, S for Sam, test.com. Um, it's free, it's online, and it's a visual contrast test. So it doesn't look at visual acuity, it looks at visual contrast. And how people respond to that can tell us whether, A, they're chemically sensitive and or they're likely to be this type of genotype. So it's just a, a, a good screening test. It's not definitive, but it helps me determine before I go to their house whether they could have some form of chemical in, in their central nervous system or some type of biotoxin if they come up um, positive on this test. So the VCS test, I think we'll put that website up on fxmedicine.com.au for our listeners. That's a really important thing. That's really interesting, that one. Yeah, and it only takes about 10 minutes max. Mm. What we find is once the house is remediated through an accredited mould remediator, we'll then go in and test. And we often find patients come up negative on that test as they improve. So as their health improves, we find this test is a great screen to see how well they're going in terms of their exposure to these things. It was initially developed by the um, US EPA um, in um, uh, pilots Ah. for chemical exposures and things like this. Yeah. You're talking crop dusters and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, there's a question that I'm sorry this is out of out of sync a little bit, but I should have asked this a little bit earlier because it was relevant for when you were talking about one chemicals and these chemicals haven't been tested. Um, um, when people do a toxicology test, that's only in isolation, isn't it? That's not to do with, um, you know, combination of, let's say, you know, persistent organochlorine pesticides, the POPs. Um so it's not to do with when they're in concert with each other. But there's also a thing called the NOAEL, the non, No Observable Adverse Effect Limit. So what yes. are the pitfalls of assessing one chemical's safety, and then you publish that and everybody says, oh, it's safe, versus the host of chemicals that we see, for instance, in the home, in real life? Like where do you get this sort of uh, synergy? You know, It's almost like a sinister synergy, isn't it? Absolutely. The reality is we don't have the methodology to understand the synergistic effect of all the chemicals we're exposed to every single day. Certainly, and certainly not in an unborn fetus and certainly not in children who are going through critical windows of development. So what happens is we have to wait until the illness occurs in the human population and then look at these epidemiological studies and going, oh my God, well, what's caused it? It's like after the horse has bolted. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. The way in which... The chemicals that are assessed now is what we call a safety data sheet where we give a one chemical to a group of rats until 50% die, and that's LD. what we call the LD50. Yep. And then uh, we observe the results, and then we kill off the rats, and we don't look at the long-term effects. So, But we give these chemicals to our children in our hair, shampoos, conditioners, moisturizers, 
building materials, flame retardants, pesticides, um, air fresheners. It's just incredible. It's The whole industry has run amok because it's about capitalist society being dividends for shareholders, industry not required to test their chemicals to prove they're safe. So we put it on the supermarket shelf and consumers think that it's been tested, but it never has. And that's because you're worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Bam, and your health is gone. But but when you you say you're worth it, I just want to read this quote from a paper. A recent review further estimated that the disease burden in the European Union associated with exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, EDCs, alone costs $209 $209 billion or 1.23% of Europe's GDP. So I've got to ask the question, yes. if you're worth it, why aren't governments more concerned with toxicity from EDCs and POPs and things like that? If this is such a cost, that's a huge saving. Exactly. I guess because the people who are developing the exposure standards is conflict of interest. I mean... In the next edition of my book, I'll go into detail on how the exposure standards, which are not health-based standards, uh, have been developed for electromagnetic fields in conjunction with the telecommunications industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Hmm. You know, we're talking about people that have employed people from the tobacco industry yeah. who were head of tobacco industry being used as their communications manager to allay pe- people's concerns. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. We should be rioting in the streets. And, of course, what we're left with is a society that is incredibly sick. Are we living longer? Probably, but we're doing it pretty sick. I mean, cancer's overtaken cardiovascular disease now as its prime mortality in Western countries. Yeah. And the synergistic effects are ignored. So um, especially in children and hormone disrupting chemicals, I mean, it scares me. I mean, yeah. you think about when you expose uh, very low levels of these chemicals in an unborn child between week 7 and 14, which is probably the most important critical window of development, especially for um, the fetus when its reproductive cycle is starting to develop. Most people don't realise fetuses up until week 7 have a bipotential stage. They have both a male and a female reproductive tract ready to go, regardless of their genotype, regardless of whether they're XX, male, or XY, oh, sorry, XY male or hmm. XX female. Yep. So they have two anatomical tracks ready to go. Week 7 to 14, if there's um, a, a gene on the Y chromosome sends a message to the XY embryo to produce testosterone to masculinize the male brain and to shrivel up the female reproductive tract and develop the male reproductive tract, by week 14 that needs to occur. Otherwise, that XY male embryo becomes a female phenotype. So what happens, therefore, when you expose, when pregnant women have perfume, fragrances in their moisturizers and their body butter to get rid of stretch marks that are loaded with hormone-disrupting chemicals and phthalates Bleaching at very, hair. very low levels? Yeah. Mm. And, and exposing these xenoestrogens to these children in the unborn fetus. And then you wonder why, you know, potentially infant obesity is increased, early puberty, increased breast cancers testicular cancers, most of these things have increased significantly in the 70s when a lot of these chemicals were launched into everyday products. I remember when my wife, Lee, was uh, having our two boys, when she was pregnant with our two boys, that she stopped bleaching, uh, bleaching her hair. And so this lovely auburn hair that she used to have, um, let's say that showed a little bit of a lighter shade. She still looked glowing, 
still glowed, I might say. But I just thought, well, <laughs> I, I, was, well I was really appreciative that she took the care to say, no, I'm not going to have this. I'm, you know, she was so careful of what she'd put into her body. She always was. But all of these little things that she could do to decrease any sort of intake of a contaminant, she would do. And I just think it's really interesting that the pressure of women these days to look good um, is, yes. you know, it's it's so great that we need some publicising of the issues so that these women know that there's an issue there. That they then they can be at least be informed to take action or not. And that's the key, isn't it? I mean, if people continue to smoke even though they know they have adverse effects. Good, you know, let them be as long as they don't affect you or me and our kids. Yeah, we can talk uh, about but, second and third hand smoke there later, but anyway. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. yeah. But in terms of people can't make informed choice because they simply don't know. Yeah, they simply don't know. That's right. So just moving on about these hormone disruptors, we saw 40 years ago, you know, the transgenerational issue with um, DES, yes. diethylstilbestrol. So can you take our listeners through both this devastating issue for daughters of the mothers and what the issues are for today's endocrine disruptors, which are obviously different. DES has got taken off the market. Yes, so DES was a drug that was given to women to um, prevent miscarriages. It was used for over 5 million women who were exposed to this and they ended up giving birth to daughters who had a much higher increased risk for vaginal cancer and breast cancer. So they end up, many of them died from this rare form of vaginal cancer. And if they didn't die from that, then their incidence of breast cancer significantly increased. In the boys born to these mothers who took this drug, it also increased risk of reproductive abnormalities and infertility in these males. So it was the first time, up until this time in 1960, um, it, the medical assumption was that the mother protected the fetus from anything that was dangerous apart from um, radiation. But of course, two years after that, we had thalidomide and realised that even though the mother looked well and she could take thalidomide, that in fact it had devastating impacts because of the missing limbs and psychomelia in the children who were born to women um, who took thalidomide. So mm, mm. within two years, we realised that, that taking drugs may not affect the mother, but it could have devastating consequences on the unborn fetus and the, the development later on in their life. Now, since then, we've realised that there are over a thousand hormone disrupting chemicals in everyday products, um, mainly in food packaging, plastics, definitely your PVC, polystyrene, polycarbonate plastics are the big ones. Um, you've got them in phthalates in perfume. So perfume to me is like asbestos. It's probably one of the most toxic chemicals apart from pesticides that uh, people can be exposed to. Perfume, uh, about 70% of perfumes contain phthalates according to the wow. Environmental Working Group. And that alone, anything that says fragrance or puffer or perfume, I think should be avoided of any woman or man of reproductive age because many of these are consistent organic pollutants that can stay in the fat tissue forever. And when a woman gets pregnant, she passes that her load to the fetus. And when she breastfeeds, because breast milk is primarily fat, that's where all the fat-loving toxins go. So they've actually said, Neil Skakabak, one of the leading researchers on hormone disrupting chemicals, said the most effective way for a woman to reduce her chemical load is to get pregnant, pass it on to a fetus in the placenta and breastfeed as long as she can and pass it on to them that way. That is how bad the situation is. Whoa. 
So this is why reproductive, you know, when I went through naturopathy in the 90s, early 90s and I finished, you know, re- preconceptive care was six months. Now it's like it starts at your grandmother. Yeah, that's amazing. Because when, you know, when you're pregnant, especially if you have a female fetus, female daughter, by four, week 14 of the pregnancy, she has all her eggs for her children ready to go. So whatever the mother's exposed to will not only affect her daughter, but affects her daughter's children as well. And these are the transgenerational effects that we're starting to see. And the epigenetic effects of these subtle chemicals in critical windows of development can be devastating as we're starting to see with these epidemics and pandemics of idiopathic multimorbidity. You know, I guess the problem that I have with... um, trying to get this sort of thing recognised is the effects of thalidomide were devastating, absolutely devastating and plainly evident. The effects of DES were not so evident. And, you know, it was that's detective work to try and find that. It wasn't the, the mothers that had the problem, but the daughters of the mothers. That's incredible detective work and would have taken some, you know, um, discovery. Try and uncover something like um, the effects of a host of chemicals or let's say three chemicals working together where you get not one but a synergistic effect. So instead of, say, times three, you'll get a times 30 or times 300 effect. Trying to do that would be – I don't know how anybody would pull it apart, particularly when there's um, you know financial interest involved in, in the use of these chemicals. So how – how do you get somebody to actually tease apart, yes, or we're seeing an effect from that? You can't. What you have to do is you have to reduce the load and educate the patient to why less is best. Yeah. You have to support liver detoxification. You have to support elimination, but avoidance is the key. I've just interviewed almost 20 GPs as part of my research to see how they deal with environmental chemicals. And the reality is it's not viable and even the lab, there's not even the labs there to quantify every chemical, the hundreds of chemicals in our bodies. I mean, the name study, the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey, which is the largest biomonitoring study in the US, in the world that's happening in the US, there are hundreds of chemicals they're finding in all of us all the time. So we can't quantify it, and the cost of quantifying is is not viable. The labs aren't there, the tests aren't available, etc. And the reality is, would it change the outcome? Probably not, Mm. because we should be avoiding it and we need to support liver detoxification and elimination and go back to, you know, the naturopathic common sense. I asked Dr. Mark Donahoe about how do we measure for, you know, pesticide residues and pops and things like that. And he said, well, seeing as a lot of these newer ones are more water soluble, that you can't measure them directly. You have to then measure the effects. So is this, to me, or that seems to me the perfect crime, if you like, for these chemical manufacturers to say, no, it's not us, not a problem. So how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you measure the effects? Well, you look at the DNA adducts. So it's like a signature left by the chemical in the body. Uh And that's done through these DNA adducts. And there are um, companies, labs around the world, they're primarily based in England that can do this, but they're so overloaded that they're not even taking on a lot of the um, tests that our GPs are sending because there's just so much work to do this. So DNA adduct is like an imprint of the chemical 
that provides a signature that that chemical has been there because, yes, he's right, especially with phthalates, it has a short half-life of about 72 hours or so. So what we do know is that all of us have many chemicals in our body and by taking a simple survey, we're able to determine how big that toxic load is. But I think what we really need to focus on is acknowledge we know it's there, so let's educate the patient why putting slathering themselves full of creams on their skin that are getting get into the systemic circulation and have to get through liver detoxification and burden their elementary organs we really need to think twice about that you know think about organic foods at least for the foods that are high in pesticide load like your apples and your pears and your berries etc if you can't afford to go completely organic because that can have a significant impact in reducing chemical load um, perfumes, pesticides, having a non-chemical form of pest management in the home, you know, fly screen, shut the doors, don't keep food lying around, don't have water lying around, yeah. you know, clean your pet bowls regularly. It's so simple. This yeah. is the irony with my work that I do. It's so simple. You Knowledge and education is what we need to do to encourage people to avoid most of these contaminants and, and open up their windows and doors, promote ventilation, and, you know, not get sucked in by a lot of the propaganda and the ads that we see in, in the media. Yeah, the Dettol generation. Uh, I mean, we're now realising, you know, in terms of chemical um, exposures and detoxification, detoxification happens in the epithelial cells and in the, on the skin. Pseudomonas, micrococcus, et cetera, staphylococcus, they actually start transmuting cigarette smoke before it gets to your skin. So we're finding now the microbiome is such a key player here because it's, involved in detoxification before it even gets into the liver in the first place. Nicole, can I can I ask you to maybe do another podcast with us to take us through detoxification issues? Because that in itself is a subject. That in itself is a whole podcast. It's so involved. Would you be available if we did another podcast on this? Sure. I'd love to do that. I'd love to delve into this further. And I've got to say, I think for anybody, any practitioner out there who's seeing this sort of thing and maybe, you know, seeing these sorts of clinical pictures in patients, they should really be attending that joint AMA-CMA conference talk um, because it, this is in September 2016, so we haven't got a lot of time. Where is that, by the way? That's in Melbourne, right? Sydney. It's held at Sydney at Sofitel. Sydney Sofitel? Yep. Yeah, and they can go to the AMA or the CMA website and register there. Yeah, yeah, AIMA. Yeah. So I got to say, thank you so much for taking us through your speciality today. It's it's really quite interesting to me. Anytime. So if I could just summarise what can be done to reduce people's load, this would be it. First thing, take your shoes off before you get into the house because it significantly reduces the dust load where many of these contaminants are. Use a vacuum cleaner fitted with a HEPA filter mm. and a, a motorised head to actually dig into the pile to get rid of it because where the dust is, that's where most of the contaminants are in the house. Air your house by opening windows as often as you can. You know, really be mindful about what you put on your skin. If it's not safe enough to eat, don't put it near your skin. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a book, pardon my expression, get the shit off your face. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a bestseller in Australia for sure. <laughs> I'm sure it will. <laughs> um, for cleaning the products in the home, use your microfiber cloth. I mean, my husband and I manufacture our own cleaning product brand in health food stores, but, you know, use microfiber cloth as much as possible. Yep. Use the sun to air your bedding, your mattresses, your cushions, because it's the best cleaning agent we have. 
store your food and beverages in glass or stainless steel, but not plastic. Plastic degrades at room temperature. It degrades when you freeze it. It degrades when you heat it. Avoid air fresheners, pesticides and artificial fragrances and perfume as they're toxic and keep electrical appliances at least a metre away from where you spend time, especially your bed. As for drinking water, well, we'll leave that to another time because I could spend hours (laughs) on drinking water. Mm. Thanks so much for taking us through your expertise, Nicole, and we will pick this up in a second podcast later on. Thanks so much, Andrew. Pleasure to be on. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.